thank you very much to the authors uh, from uh, the report. All four authors are here to present a very interesting uh, report. And of course, uh, discussions, as always, uh, at Bruegel, we have a, a discussion on, on, uh, on the issue. We are here to discuss a CPR report that was written on where we are on financial regulation, are we sound at last, very interesting title. And the authors have very kindly agreed to come and present it uh, today. Very quickly, if I could present, if I could present uh, Patrick Bolton on, on the uh, end of the, of the line. Uh, Xavier Weiss here on my right. And then on the other side, we have Matthias de Vatripont, who is uh, he very well known here at Bruegel. And of course, our very own Rebecca Christie, who uh, will be, uh, both of them will be uh, discussing briefly the report after the presentation. We are going to take about 30 minutes for what I believe is a joint presentation. Is that correct? Um, then we will take uh, maybe 10 minutes each for, uh, for, the, for the comments, starting with you, uh, Matthias, and then uh, you, Rebecca. And of course, the other two authors are also here. If I briefly introduce you, Stephen Cerchetti, who's sitting here at the front, and uh, Jean-Pierre Dantin, also here at the front. Thank you for joining us. Uh, I think we should probably make a start, given that we have a big report ahead of us. Um, you can use the, the slider here, and uh, the floor is yours. Thank you for coming. Thank you very much. So thank you, uh, Bruegel, and, and to you to host uh, this event. So we're very happy to present it here after our London uh, presentation. Uh, I also would like to thank the, the discussants, uh, Rebecca and Matthias, for agreeing to discuss uh, this report. Uh, so this report is part of um, a wider initiative at, at ESA uh, on uh, fostering uh, research uh, in banking, and one of the activities will be uh, to uh, try to have a report um, every year on some topic of interest uh, in banking. So this is the report, so, so that you see that it exists, apart from uh, your electronic no, uh, version that you can uh, download at the CPR uh, website. So uh, let me just start with some general remarks on the banking industry uh, in the aftermath uh, of the crisis. Um, since then, uh, regulation and supervision has improved. Banks are better capitalized. Authorities pay more attention to systemic risk. So this is something that went unnoticed in the run-up to, to the crisis. So that these are clear uh, improvements. Uh, however, still, uh, we have uh, things uh, to worry, like, for example, high levels of debt, high sovereign debt uh, uh, to GDP ratios, and, in fact, very low and persistent levels of interest rates. And as we'll see, uh, we may be on the verge of uh, currency wars uh, between, different, uh, between different major uh, players, as we are learning uh, as we speak, basically. Um, also, uh, a point that we make in the report is that it seems that the regulatory authorities sometimes seem to lack uh, the political support to take forward the reforms and appropriate uh, regulation. Uh, for example, um, some uh, powers uh, to the Fed were taken out uh, post-crisis uh, via Dodd-Frank. Um, and in fact, as uh, Stan Fischer just remarked uh, very recently uh, also in Sintra, and as uh, Ben Bernanke, uh, Paulson and Geithner also remarked in an article in the Wall Street Journal. So if the crisis were to happen today, uh, the Fed would have less powers to intervene than uh, at the time of the, uh, of the crisis. So the, the general idea to end bailouts uh, is, is sound, but uh, not taken uh, to, uh, to an extreme. In particular, for example, in Europe, 
We still have pending the completion of banking union uh, in the Eurozone, and this still there's, for example, the deposit insurance pillar and a true backstop to the banking system is still, uh, is still uh, lacking. And so, and what uh, we think is that some unrealistic commitments to end bailouts, no matter what, even on the face of a uh, big macroeconomic shock, uh, since they are not realistic, they would not be fulfilled, and so and this uh, lends, uh, in fact, uh, implies a lack of credibility in the policies which are, uh, uh, which are fostered. Uh, apart from that, the credibility of the regulators is at stake for another reason, which is uh, sometimes politics is uh, the very source of instability. As we see central bank independence, and this is a topic on, also on the chapter three of the, on the last chapter of the report, is the very source of, uh, of uh, of instability. Uh, central bank independence, for example, has been attacked. Uh, obviously, in the US is constantly attacked. In the US, it has been attacked in India and, uh, and in Turkey and in other places. And so this is the frame uh, with which we have to work with. Looking forward, uh, the next uh, global crisis, well, who knows no, where it will be. But uh, if the past is any predictor of the future, uh, we know that um, um, activities in the periphery of the core functions of banks uh, with shadow banks typically have been at the forefront of crisis, like in 1907, in the panic of 1907, the one that, that uh, JP Morgan helped to, uh, to stabilize, or in the 80s with the crisis in the savings and loans after liberalization uh, and with the entry of mutual funds, money market mutual funds in the US in, at the end of the 70s, or in the current crisis, uh, as we know. Um, so uh, the challenges are, uh, are large. Uh, apart from that, obviously, the next novel crisis could also emerge in, uh, in, and be systemic in, in, in different uh, countries like China, uh, unless we really walk towards a two-world, at least, no, uh, uh, a big separation east and west, which is also uh, possible. So the, the, the challenges for both banks and regulators are very important. Uh, incumbent banks must adapt to digital disruption and to the increasingly competitive environment uh, this has created in and, uh, on, and on top. Uh, interest rates are persistently uh, low. Uh, they still some have a legacy of uh, bad loans, and they have heavy compliance. Okay, so it's a kind of a no, it's not an easy uh, time, uh, in a sense, to be an incumbent in the banking sector. Uh, regulators uh, must try to maintain a playing field. Uh, at the same time, that uh, protect financial stability. So they may encourage entry, but obviously uh, taking into account that uh, entrants that may become, or activities that may become systemic, uh, they have to be uh, taken uh, into account. So, for example, in, in Sintra, uh, very recently, Mark Carney of the Bank of England was asked about Libra and uh, what was uh, uh, the digital currency that Facebook is, uh, no, is, uh, is, is starting and said uh, some very sensible things that, well, if it becomes systemic, so then obviously we have to, uh, we are open uh, to it, open uh, to innovation, but it, it, will have to be, uh, it will have to be regulated and comply uh, with the different uh, controls that uh, systemic activities uh, require. So this will be this balance between no, allowing innovation, but at the same time preserving financial stability. Okay, uh, so the three main chapters are a uh, first chapter on uh, looking at 
what has been done at Basel III and then and beyond, a second on resolving too big to fail, and a third on the enlarged role of, for central banks. Uh, now, in the remaining time I have, I'll just will talk very briefly on the first uh, one, and Patrick will talk about the last uh, two chapters. So, just to start with an observation. Uh, the observation is that after any major crisis, uh, the, the proposal of to move banking to a narrow bank uh, uh, status, where basically uh, no, all the investments of banks would be extremely safe, like uh, no, uh, government bonds uh, in the US, for example, um, uh, and, and then that's it. Uh, so basically, um, killing the maturity transformation function of banks uh, surfaces. So we think that this is not uh, this would not be a solution because this the fragility the maturity transformation is necessary. We will continue to happen maybe outside then these narrow banks and therefore it, the the problem would be reproduced at another uh, scale. So that's just a general comment that I think it's it's important uh, to make. And two uh, other uh, general points out of the report. The first is that prudential regulations should take a holistic approach so that the view that we can set or regulators can set capital liquidity disclosure requirements separately, separately of each other uh, is not very sound because they are uh, interactions. So, for example, if you increase disclosure requirements that uh, may serve as coordinating devices of runs, you should at the same time think of uh, potentially increasing liquidity buffers so that, uh, so that institutions have more room uh, to withstand uh, runs. Uh, or in a more liberalized uh, environment, like it was happening in the savings and loans uh, uh, crisis or previous to the savings and loans crisis, the regulator should have thought of increasing capital requirements. Okay? So, so these things have to be thought together, and, and we have some things to say uh, on this. On a stress test, so uh, stress test, uh, we find it's a very useful uh, innovation uh, uh, that, uh, that will help to uh, keep financial stability, and in particular stress tests are very useful if well designed. And for this, uh, we think that they need to be severe, otherwise they, there's not much point in it, and the European ones is not obvious that they have been severe, flexible. Uh, are not overly uh, transparent. Uh, flexible, because they, this is dynamic, and you know, they have to adapt to uh, circumstances, are not overly transparent so that uh, banking institutions do not have um, the ability, in a sense, uh, to just study to pass the exam, okay? as uh, sometimes uh, it may happen. At the same time, they would need to incorporate a systemic uh, perspective and second round effects, and so this um, is not uh, uh, still it's not easy because uh, we do not know enough, perhaps, but it's something that has to be uh, considered. With respect to the euro area, uh, the point we make is that it's very difficult to make and uh, to have effective stress tests when uh, before um, the, in this case the eurozone has not built uh, an effective backstop for the banking system. Okay, so you cannot give bad news when you don't have, when you're not prepared uh, to uh, really confront those bad news. Three comments um, on capital liquidity and on uh, non-banks or, or shadow banks. First, on, on capital requirements, the levels are up, uh, but they are enough, on, and then on liquidity and non-banks. So capital requirements, so this is um, a sample of 56 uh, international banks, and we see 
that since the crisis, really, uh, capital requirements are up, both on a risk-weighted basis and on a leverage ratios or an equal weight uh, basis. So there has been a, a, an important uh, increase uh, in, in both uh, in, on both accounts. Uh, the question is whether uh, this is enough. So if we compare uh, what's been happening now with the base that we had at Basel II, uh, requirements have increased, uh, real capital requirements have increased uh, maybe even tenfold. So if we think of a Basel III range of 8 to 10 percent, uh, the Basel II uh, baseline was 4 percent, but then we will start with the deductions uh, that were allowed for hybrid capital, goodwill, different tax assets, adjustments uh, for the risk wage. Uh, so the effective Basel II converted to a Basel III a baseline was very small. Okay, it was very small. Uh, so then the, the issue is uh, whether uh, we are uh, at the right level of capital requirements, and there is a lot of academic uh, debate on that, because obviously more capital sometimes uh, impairs uh, lending and, and may, make, uh, may induce uh, the shadow banking uh, sector to grow. There is some evidence of that, although it's not uh, uniform. So, for example, in, in the US, uh, mortgage lending uh, has moved quite a bit towards shadow banks and in good part fintechs and this uh, according to the empirical work is uh, because of the extra requirements that that banks face not necessarily capital but the extra requirements uh, that bank uh, face but in any case so this is still uh, something to it, it's up in the air and and and, and we discuss uh, these issues um, uh, in the report um, uh, also, we have to take into account, as, as maybe Patrick will mention, that on top of the uh, core capital, there, are, there is TILAC and RMREL, so extra capital cushions uh, that increase uh, the, the capacity of banks to uh, absorb uh, shocks. All in all, we still think that if we have to err on the capital requirements, perhaps it's better to err on the high side, although the cycle uh, where do you, where you increase capital is very important. No, so capital has to be increased in expansions and not in recessions. Okay, so this is typically a very bad idea to try to increase capital uh, on recessions. Okay, uh, one point on liquidity and one point uh, on uh, on non banks and and all. So here now this is uh, heavy mathematics. This uh, slide, so be prepared. Um, that's a balance sheet of assets and liabilities, and there is some balance sheet arithmetic. So th this here we present an extremely, extremely simplified uh, balance sheet of a bank, where assets we have liquid and illiquid, and liabilities we have runnable and stable. So stable long-term debt may be unstable, even maybe insured deposits could be unstable, okay, in this. Uh, so, but in any case, uh, so the, the idea of the liquidity, um, the first uh, requirement, the LCR uh, requirement, is that liquid assets uh, are larger than runnable assets with a certain period, etc., certain constraints, okay? So this puts, uh, obviously, one constraint. And then the net stable funding ratio puts the constraint in the other, uh, on the other direction, that the stable liabilities should be able uh, to finance illiquid assets. Okay. So the question is whether we need the two. Okay, look at this, at least in this simplified perspective, with one uh, should be enough after some uh, deep mathematical thinking. Uh, obviously, uh, th there are other issues that have to be considered, but at least, uh, at least this is some food for thought, whether we need uh, the two, and that's an issue that we put on the debate uh, to be considered. Uh, okay, uh, uh, finally, on uh, non-banks. 
the global financial system assets here uh, by sector, 2007-2017. Uh, uh, the yellow thing are the non-banks. Uh, the grey thing um, are the banks. Uh, so non-banks have increased uh, the market share. So this will be shadow banks in a, in a, in a general uh, picture, while banks have uh, decreased it. So here, uh, this is global, uh, and this hides a little bit really differences. So, for example, uh, in, the, in the US, banks recover somewhat after the crisis. Uh, shadow banks also suffer quite a bit. Uh, in Europe, the decline of the market share of, of, of banks, of three banks, has, has, been, has, continued, uh, has continued after, uh, after the crisis. In any case, here, what we, um, uh, what we uh, propose is that for those entities outside the perimeter of regulation, authorities require a framework to monitor them, to assess the risk they have, designate them, that's to say, to say which ones would be uh, systemic and could be uh, a danger, and this need not be obviously inside the perimeter, but outside the perimeter. So for example, should um, um, a data and data analytics provider to some systemic banks uh, should be considered systemic, this, uh, this institution, or not? Okay, given that now banks are outsourcing many uh, no, are outsourcing many of those uh, services. No? Some providers may become uh, systemic, and then they should be regulated and, and supervised. Uh, note that um, shadow banks are, are large. So for example, the largest money market mutual fund is Yubao no? uh, in, uh, in China, and, and, and these uh, funds uh, may be subject to, uh, to runs, as we saw, for example, uh, in the US, although there are some specificities there. So in any case, this is something that needs some uh, systematic approach. And I uh, finish here and I pass the baton to, uh, I don't know, to Patrick. That was quick. Okay. It's a pleasure to be here and uh, thank you all for coming and uh, I hope you'll find today's presentation and uh, maybe also the report uh, of interest. So I will be talking about two topics um, which are traditionally not discussed when one thinks about bank regulation. Uh, first topic is resolution and the second topic is um, the new role of central banks. So let me start with resolution. We've come a long way. Um, resolution wasn't really uh, on the table when the crisis hit in uh, two thousand and seven. Here are just two quotes that will tell you why this wasn't uh, on the table. Uh, so uh, both are from Tim Geithner's in, in in his book on stress tests, which I highly recommend. So first quote, let me read it. Haircuts send a destabilizing signal that more haircuts are coming, encouraging runs on financial firms. Unfortunately, the only way for crisis responders to stop a financial panic is to remove the incentives for panic, which means preventing messy collapses of systemic firms, assuring creditors of financial institutions that their loans will be repaid. Okay, and in, in the end, uh, that's where the authorities had to go after the Lehman failure. Incidentally, Le Tim Geithner was opposed to the Lehman failure. He wanted to save uh, Lehman. Um, another issue that we have become aware of uh, as a, uh, during the crisis is uh, cross-border insolvency issues for um, global systemic banks. And the example of Barclays and Lehman, 
Uh, the issue is nicely summarized by uh, Alistair Darling in, a, in an interview he gave. I said that we would not endorse it because basically what you're asking me to do is to transfer the burden of a bust American bank onto the British taxpayer, and that's, there's no way we can do that. Okay, that's loud and clear. That's a very important issue. Uh, uh, Cross-border insolvency issues were also uh, very difficult uh, in a more, um, you, you would have expected in a more um, uh, uh, favorable context, uh, uh, whether it was Dexia, Fortis, or Anglo-Irish, these were very messy uh, uh, resolutions. A third uh, important issue when it comes to global uh, um, banks is um, the business model. A business model is not a simple one of lending to households and corporations and taking deposits. Business model involves many other activities, in particular derivatives trading. Uh, and uh, uh, um, and der derivatives and swaps books, which are huge for the, the, very large, uh, the very large financial institutions. The problem with derivatives and swaps is that counterparties are exempt from automatic stay rule uh, uh, that applies to debt contracts in bankruptcy. Concretely, what happened to Lehman when Lehman failed for Chapter 11? It was drained within a few days of all its cash because all the uh, um, swaps and derivatives counterparties were coming in and grabbing all the cash. Uh, a Lehman broker-dealer arm couldn't operate. It had to be sold at 10 times less the price in the, uh, within one week of the, of the bankruptcy. That's a, a very big problem. Do you point out anywhere that Lehman was not a bank at that time? Because that played a it big role. It was a broker-dealer. It was not a bank holding company. Right, but I, I just, since you didn't say it explicitly, for people who might not have been um, glued to the markets then, it was outside the bank resolution framework. It was a shadow bank. And it is the point, but you're getting there in such a graceful and elegant way that I, I worry it's, <laughs> people aren't seeing the Thank connection right away. <laughs> Thank you for clarifying. This is a very important issue. Okay, And it also goes back to what Xavier said at the beginning of his presentation. The crisis of 07 or 08 did not originate in the commercial banking sector. It originated in the broker-dealer sector. And the problem with that is precisely what you said. Broker-dealer sector did not have a resolution uh, procedure that was adapted to its business model, like FDIC receivership. That's much more adapted than Chapter 11 bankruptcy. It had to be treated like a non-financial corporation. And it wasn't just Lehman that ran into problems. It was uh, Bear Stearns. Bear Stearns was saved, but the Fed had to go to incredible hoops to save Bear Stearns, and it could easily have failed uh, as well. So that was a huge uh, area of vulnerability. So I'll elaborate on that in a second. Another big problem is you know you look at these banks, these large banks. They have th literally thousands of affiliates all over the world. Okay, so how do you do a resolution of a, such a complex institution? So, good news is we've come up with an idea uh, that you know, if it works, it's like a brilliant solution. Of course, it's a big if, but uh, I'll, I'll turn, uh, turn to that uh, in a few minutes. Um, what's the idea? The idea is that resolution should only happen at the holding company level. 
and should not touch the affiliates. Affiliates should remain uh, uh, as going concerns, business as usual. Um, now, there may be multiple uh, bank holding uh, entities. Uh, there could be a parent, and then there could be intermediate holding companies. Uh, and then you, this general idea could be extended to intervening at multiple holding company levels. That's the multiple point of entry uh, uh, idea, which is the counterpoint to a single point of entry where you have a single parent, uh, uh, a single holding company structure. Okay, so that's a brilliant idea because you're really focusing where uh, you're intervening. You can, you can simplify that, you can prepare for that. So that's, here's the idea. So think about Lehman, for example, here with, uh, you know, its main affiliates, UK and uh, US. If we, if we had had a single uh, point of entry model for Lehman, basically the intervention would have happened only in the US. And um, the, the losses could have materialized in London or, you know, Singapore, other parts. Of, uh, but the losses would have been pushed up to the holding company and if the holding company, as a result of taking on those losses, was insolvent, you would write down the debts, long-term debt, that the holding company had issued. Okay, that's the single point of entry model. Um, more elaborate one is multiple points of entry. Uh, uh, so, like, for example, HSBC or uh, Santander prefer that model. And basically what it means is you have holding company structures in multiple jurisdictions. <coughs> Okay, so that's essentially the added complexity. Um, now, of course, if you're going to do uh, a resolution at the holding company level, only keeping everything else intact, in particular, keeping all the, the, the creditors, all the counterparties of the affiliates whole, you have to make sure you have enough of a cushion to eat into at the holding company level. That's the TLAC uh, idea, total loss absorbing capacity. That's what's been added to regular capital uh, requirement cushion. This is what uh, Xavier was alluding earlier. This has become very large. So the, for example, the, the, the five largest US um, bank groups, if you add up their equity capital plus the TLAC, the long-term debt that they've issued, they, it exceeds, the whole thing exceeds 30% uh, on a risk-weighted asset basis. They're, they're very well, on that basis, extremely well capitalized at this point. Um, resolution requires liquidity support. That's a theme that we are uh, um, emphasizing in the report. It's something that you know, people would rather not touch in some, you know, in some quarters. Uh, uh, in the US, some people believe that once you've done resolution, you don't need liquidity support anymore. But um, we are arguing in the report that um, this is an untested model. These are global banks. There's so many things that could go wrong. Um, very little trust will be put into this system when it's tested, uh, if it ever gets tested markets won't have much confidence in it. And so to make sure that it works, you have to also come in with a backstop. And this is coming back to what uh, Javier mentioned earlier, uh, what Dodd-Frank did uh, to restrict the Fed's uh, uh, ability to intervene is a big weakness in the system because 
the Fed wouldn't, won't be able to come in with a very, uh, uh, you know, a, a credible backstop in, in the next crisis. Um, last point on resolution, uh, um, which um, uh, I, I want to mention, which is an interesting one. So one side effect of this model, single point of entry model, is that um, the idea is that um, these global banks, they're there to stay forever. Because even if they run into trouble, what will happen is just that their long-term liabilities will be written off. And then they'll continue. All their operations will continue. So it's, it's, it's a very strange form of resolution. You're not coming in and saying, well, you don't have a viable business. This is no longer working. We're going to close you down, right? So that's really up to the bank management and uh, bank shareholders to take those initiatives. But that's, I think, an interesting uh, uh, side effect of the, uh, of the new rules. Okay, let me turn now to um, expanded role for central banks, which is a very important part of our report. Uh, uh, central banks um, have uh, been drawn into uh, a traditional role uh, that they had to play that, uh, when they were created, but that had been forgotten. And the traditional role is to support banking system in times of crisis, to act as a lender of last resort. That's why the Fed was created. Uh, that's why the Bank of England was created. You look at the history of uh, central banks. That was their original purpose. And we've come back to that purpose. So now we have a much larger, uh, uh, if you want, role understand we have a much larger role for uh, uh, um, central banks. Um, we also have new challenges, the, the monetary policy in a zero lower bound environment. And so one of the um, very important uh, themes that we touch on um, in the report is the theme of central bank independence in this new and large role. And uh, we point out that um, there's a risk that this may, you know, the, the whole new role may be just too big for an independent central bank. And what's at risk is the independence of the central bank. And so we need to think very carefully about central bank's roles in order to preserve probably the most valuable feature of central banking in recent years, that we've developed in recent years, which is their, their independence. Um, let me, I mean, much of what we are saying is, sum, is summarized nicely. Paul Tucker wrote a whole book about this, but uh, I'm just going to give you a quote uh, uh, from, uh, from his book. In today's democracies, the only way to combine effectiveness and with legitimacy is transparency around the rules of the game. If credible, credible commitment and originating, sorry, if credible commitment originating as an emergency institution can be reconciled in principle, getting from principle to in practice requires public deliberation and, and debate so that the re requisite degree of comprehension and support is established. Okay, so that's really very much a theme that we build on uh, in the report. Transparency, public deliberation is key to preserving the uh, independence of central banks in their expanded role. Um, Okay, so one, one particular uh, challenge in the expanded role that central banks face today is the zero lower bound. 
terms. In a way, in very simple terms, once you reach the zero lower bound, once interest rates hit zero, nominal interest rates hit zero, um, the, the tools that you're going to use as a, a, you know, for monetary policy purposes are going to be looking like more and more other policies. They're going to look more like fiscal policy than monetary policy, if you want. So it creates a major issue, it raised a major issue, the, 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 the policy mix at the zero lower bound. Very often you hear central bankers say, you're asking us to do too much. We, we would like to be able to rely on the fiscal uh, side when we reach the zero lower bound. We would like to better coordinate with fiscal authorities. And so here what we're saying is that, yes, this, this has to be, uh, 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 Policy coordination has to be facilitated one way or another at the zero lower bound. And that requires rethinking the practice of independence at the zero lower bound. Particularly, it requires allowing for public deliberation between independent central banks and uh, uh, fiscal, fiscal authorities. And um, it uh, requires um, uh, giving up uh, on strategic ambiguity. Strategic ambiguity cannot uh, be reconciled with an idea that you have the fiscal authorities, monetary authorities talking with each other, coordinating an intervention uh, 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 while maintaining independence of, of the central bank. Um, another uh, point that we emphasize in the reports uh, this is highlighted here in red uh, on this slide, is that, yeah, you, so you can't dispense with the backstop. The backstop has to be there. Backstop can be seen as a subsidy to the financial system, to the banking system that has access to uh, central bank liquidity. Um, if you're going to give that subsidy, if you allow banks to survive because they have access to that subsidy, then the counterpart should be tighter regulation of executive remuneration, executive compensation at, uh, uh, at, uh, at these banks, you, it, you can't have a heavily subsidized bank with a CEO that earns you know, tens of millions of dollars, like uh, let's say the, the CEO of, uh, of a, you know, a non-financial non uh, non company. Uh, who doesn't get any subsidy, right? So that's not really, uh, uh, we argue, that's not really uh, uh, justified. Um, so one of the challenges uh, in the expanded role for central banks is how to organize this cooperation between the fiscal and monetary sides of, uh, of uh, uh, um, crisis resolution uh, policies. Um, and uh, this will be my uh, last slide. Um, the institutional issue that you're facing here, um, so when you, when you have an expanded mandate for central banks, well, what, what is it again? So it's, you have the traditional monetary policy, you have prudential regulation, and you have unconventional policies when you hit the zero lower bound, right? So it's, it's a lot of stuff. And, the, and as I said, you know, if you want to preserve 
independence of central banks, maybe there's an argument for saying, well, they shouldn't do all of that, all of these things. Maybe we should farm out some of these functions to other agencies, which is the case in a number of jurisdictions. Now, the one, the one country that stands out in, in, uh, you know, under the integration model is the UK. Now, we recognize that this is not necessarily a feasible model in other jurisdictions. And so we are not trying to say, well, let have everyone follow the UK model. You have to recognize institutional constraints in each jurisdiction. But we should also be aware that if you're not going for the UK model, you're going to create fragility in terms of coordinating uh, actions, and those have to be addressed. And the way we recommend they be addressed is to allow for open communication between the agencies. In a situation when you hit the zero lower bound, which we argue will be the best way of preserving the independence of uh, the central bank. So let me let me stop here. Oh, thank you very much, Matthew. That's great. Thank you both for sticking to the time. I think we should move straight ahead to the comments. If I may have the. Uh, yeah. Okay, thank you very much for the invitation. Authors for having written uh, a very nice and very readable uh, report. So it was a pleasure. Um, it's also very rich, so I will only in my 10 minutes have uh, the opportunity to talk about a couple of things. And in particular, I will focus on the, the first two of the three big chapters. Um, it's great also that uh, the report shows that the, the team combines academic expertise and high-level policy experience. Uh, I'm in agreement with most points. Uh, there are a number of things, though, that uh, are uh, not that Eurozone-centric, and I will uh, focus a bit more on that, given that we are in, in Brussels. And so I will talk about uh, four topics, the health of the Eurozone banks today, Capital Markets Union, very briefly, and then bail-in and cross-border banks. But in these topics, I will talk about uh, the various recommendations uh, of these two chapters. So uh, as was said, uh, things are better now than uh, in 2008. Thank God, of course. It was not that difficult. Um, now it's 10 times more capital and so on. Uh, but of course, you know, 10 times of almost zero is still not great. So let's face it. Um, this being said, it's difficult in Europe uh, to uh, ask for more capital because capital is not that remunerative. Uh, we talk about typically a cost of equity of 10%. That's because, of course, uh, there is such high leverage, therefore it's very risky. And when you look at uh, the various countries, the Netherlands and Belgium are okay. France, a little less good. Spain and Italy are not bad. Germany, 3%. You know. Germans seem to be not as good as banking and in cars. So, uh, <laughs> frankly, we'll come back to that. In particular, uh, oops. In particular, there is Deutsche Bank. Um, and, uh, well, as said in the report, of course, US banks are doing better today. So, a couple of numbers. Uh, I just took assets, total assets. Of course, it's, it's a bit fishy because I'm looking at the market cap and not at the uh, accounting equity, but still, look at Deutsche Bank today, market cap 13 billion, which is 0.8% of their balance sheet. 
So, you know, uh, job not done yet. Some banks are doing better. Uh, the button number, the, the first four are, are GSIPs, and they are uh, all, uh, two of them are below 3%, and then ING is 4%. So, uh, not, uh, as I say, it's not that great. Of course, part of the market cap business is the potential threat of uh, the GAFAs and so on that could change the business model and so on. Huh? So, uh, but still, I mean, some are not that great. So thinking about uh, bail-in and so on is not a bad idea. Um, very briefly about capital market union. Uh, everybody in Europe says we are too much bank-centric and that's therefore debt-centric and they show we do, should do capital market union. Uh, as the report says, uh, why are we uh, always complaining about excessive leverage while subsidizing debt over equity through the tax system? I once was told, in fact, by Paul Tucker, that this thing is bigger than the FSB. You cannot touch it. Uh, this is uh, fiscal policy. Um, I think one point I want to make is that, uh, of course, the report says, look, uh, stricter regulation of uh, the official banking sector means uh, migration towards shadow banks, and that can be a problem. Note that capital market union is also about increasing shadow banks, uh, asset managers and so on. Uh, that's a move from debt to equity. That's not that bad. So I think but your five uh, item idea of, uh, uh, of looking what these animals are like and so on, uh, I think uh, goes in the, indeed the right direction. Um, even if, of course, some of these things are pretty big and therefore their lobbying is quite powerful, and so we are definitely not there yet. Huh? Um, but uh, I think it's important to, to keep in mind that uh, some of these shadow banks are definitely an improvement over regular banks if you are worried about too much debt. Now, bail-in. Um, everybody is now for bail-in. Everybody is against bail-out. By the way, everybody is in favor of backstops. And backstops and, and bailouts are, in fact, synonymous. It's about putting public money into banks. So I think, as a trick to the Can public at large, uh, as a trick uh, to, uh, to, uh, for the public opinion, having a new name <laughs> might be helpful. But let's face it, completely uh, rigorous. Uh, now, by the way, more important, Lehman was bailing. Uh, that trigger, of course, a complete uh, bail-in in the sense that rather than having taxpayer money, you have the creditors uh, having losses. That was the only place uh, where that happened. Uh, of course, there was also Iceland and so on. But in terms of in countries where these were not too big to save, uh, you didn't have bail-in except for Lehman, which was a disaster. As you say, it triggered a change in... Um, in equilibrium, Diamond Dedrick, I think, is the best way to understand uh, Lehman. Uh, and, uh, of course, part of it is bad coordination. All these runs are rational. Part of it is information-based. Yes, I have no idea what Diamond Dedrick is. Can you just give us the two-second explanation? So it's basically the idea that uh, so it's a model of uh, a bank without deposit insurance. So today, think uh, wholesale deposits. By the way, in that sense, Lehman, that was an investment bank, had only wholesale deposits, so no insurance. And uh, the view is in this kind of model. Uh, when nobody runs, then it's your interest not to run. But when everybody runs, the bank will go under, and therefore, the, uh, it is a dominant strategy to run. So in that sense, uh, 
And, and the problem is that, uh, you know, what went wrong with Lehman that will not go wrong anymore with, uh, with, uh, in the other cases. I think the key, and uh, I think uh, people understand that well in the bail-in, is that uh, in order to, what you don't want to have in a bail-in is to have uh, short-term creditors at risk because they can run away. Uh, so in this world about so-called orderly resolution, I think there is at times, and even a bit in the report, a bit too much focus on we should have treated the, uh, the depositors of uh, Lehman differently. They should have had a better idea of what they were going to lose and so on. I think that's not the point. If you, can, if you understand that you will lose something, knowing it in three years or knowing it in two weeks, you want to run. Of course, Lehman depositors could not run, so they are not important. What is important is the bank next door. And that's exactly what Tim Geithner's uh, quote was. Uh, if I'm with Fortis and I think, oh, oh, maybe I will be treated like Lehman, then I run. And so that's the key problem. And indeed, some people say it's only true for big banks because of the uh, interconnection and so on. Beyond the mechanical interconnection, that indeed, uh, if a big bank fails and some other banks who are creditors will be in trouble, but there's also the informational internet connection. For example, today, if a bank in the Eurozone fails, people will think, uh-oh, the NPL problem is worse than I thought, and if these guys were bailed in and I can run, I will run. So that is the key. Therefore, what we should do is concentrate the pain, the pain on claim holders whose money is stuck in the bank, and only there. In that sense, TLAC is much better than BRD that uh, you say in the, uh, in the, uh, the report because what you want to do is first build up the long-term junior uh, loss absorbency and then implement it. Here we did the opposite. From January 1st, 2016, we have this 8% rule that you have to bail in 8% of the bank, non-risk weighted, before you can think about putting some uh, other money. And uh, of course, we are not there yet. And therefore, second best, I think it's much better than uh, than uh, implementing the 8% rule. We played around, found loopholes, and therefore the Venetian Bank, national bankruptcy, or the uh, uh, Montepaschi uh, precautionary recap, and so on. Okay, we are twisting the uh, European law, but when European law is bad, it's better <laughs> to twist it, frankly. Uh, so we haven't done it yet. And uh, of course, that has meant procrastination. These problems remain. As I like to say, when bailout is out and bail-in is not in, denial is the only option left. And that's the story of, uh, of resolution in Europe until now. Good news, however, BRD is getting better. There is a revision this month, uh, better late than ever, than never, with stricter subordinated MREL requirement for banks bigger than 100 billion balance sheets, and, which is already very good, but that's definitely not enough, but there is the ability for national resolution authorities to go below that number of 100 billion. Uh, and I think that's crucial that every bank, because, you know, uh, the uh, TLAC is for uh, 30 uh, GCIPs. Uh, here, BRD is for 6,000 banks, huh? so every bank. So they should all have 8% uh, subordinated. Belgium is doing it, the, the Macroprudential Authority, the National Bank of Belgium. I think everybody should do it. 
By the way, one comment on uh, the incomplete banking union, uh, European deposit insurance not being there, and so on. There is a lot of excitement, you know, the Commission versus Germany, and so on. I think it's a bit symbolic. BRD has made uh, the deposit insurance fund so senior that it's not risky anymore. So the idea that we should ensure, that the first thing should be to ensure the insurer, you don't find that in introductory economics classes, but you have it, uh, no bailout, no bailout, and we are still waiting for the backstop. So, but anyway, so that's the, uh, so I think things are improving, but there is still some way to go. Finally, five, two, three more minutes. Um, another big topic in Europe is cross-border banking. And the fact that we need uh, cross-border uh, cross banks, the ECB is in favor, the SSM is in favor. Of course, the big banks that hope to grow are in favor. Um, I think we do have overcapacity. Uh, we could accelerate restructuring these kinds of things. Uh, it should help monetary transmission. All that stuff is true. Uh, the question is, will it allow for more re-diversification or instead exacerbate the too-big-to-fail syndrome? Uh, I would make two points on this. First of all, indeed, our retail markets are still extremely uh, non-international. You know, the, the top five countries in the Eurozone, so Germany, France, Italy, Spain, and Netherlands, uh, have uh, more than 90% of their domestic assets uh, by domestic banks. Belgium, which is the number six uh, in terms of size, is an exception because, uh, because of ING Belgium and BNP Paribas Fortis, we have 50% that are, uh, so, and I'm talking about 90% uh, or 50% of domestic that is non-foreign uh, branches nor foreign subsidiaries, huh? so very, very concentrated. So there could be reason to try and go international. By the way, one advantage would be that it would reduce the sovereign bias. Because, you know, BNP Paribas Fortis has a lot of Belgian debt, and BNP Paribas has uh, French debt, and so on and so forth. Uh, so that could help. Uh, I think we all agree that uh, the, uh, we have too much sovereign concentration. Uh, I don't think Basel will do anything about it. I mean, I, I've never seen supervisors so uh, saying in such for, uh, so forcefully that their governments don't want to talk about that. So let's forget about it. Uh, it's only the Eurozone, which has a specific problem, 19 countries without one central bank, uh, with only one central bank. And so maybe we can go to concentration risk way, something like that. Uh, this will be difficult, but maybe as part of a, a package. The good news is that would also uh, solve partly the other problem, which is the home economy bias. Because, uh, you know, if your sovereign defaults, even if you don't hold it, your economy will collapse and you will collapse as a bank. So uh, we also need to think about, uh, about diversification there. One idea could be to introduce concentration risk charges, if we go to that, only at the consolidated level of the bank, not at the subsidiary level. Because indeed, uh, international banks do, uh, do have domestic sovereign concentration country by country. And so in that sense, uh, that could be an interesting idea. Uh, of course, this cross-border banking, you have the problem of uh, too big to fail. 
which uh, is stressing the uh, this has not become worse in general, even though, of course, in Europe, the f going to the banking union uh, has improved things because relative to the eurozone, these banks are, uh, are smaller. Uh, but let's face it, uh, our banks are big, are not that well capitalized, and moreover, the system has introduced these GCIP surcharges, but they are more than offset by uh, the ability of banks to, um, to uh, use their internal models. And the Basel Compromise is pretty amazing. It says it was the only politically feasible thing, yeah? so, uh, but it says that until 2027, banks can, through these output floors, they can gain at most 27.5% of capital, thanks to their internal model, relative to the standardized approach. And by 2022, they can still economize 50% of their capital. This is much bigger than the GCIP surcharge. And so uh, we still subsidize big banks. We still subsidize size. Uh, which is not stressed that much in the, uh, in the report. Uh, by the way, a digression on the finalization of Basel III. Banks are, of course, complaining. It, they call it Basel IV. I think it should be called Bison 2.8, because basically <laughs> the last phase has reduced the capital in the system. Uh, when you do the, the computation, the final uh, thing that uh, was published in 2018 uh, which was cleaning up a bit the internal models, has in fact resulted in less capital in the system. By the way, it was the Eurozone pushing for that because they have indeed very low risk weights and therefore go back to Deutsche Bank. Yeah. And, uh, so, uh, but not only. Yeah. Now, there is a discussion about the leverage ratio. Uh, I think the leverage ratio, that was Basel zero in a sense, before we started uh, doing uh, risk weighting. Uh, I think... There is one way to, uh, to uh, justify the leverage ratio. It's at least as a way to get around the 0% risk weight on sovereigns. You know, Dexia, which was specialized in, you know, they had this crazy idea of let's be the world leader in municipal financing, and so zero risk weights and so on. So they could grow without capital. You don't want that. So I, I would have liked, as a Belgian a citizen, to have had the leverage ratio at the time, even though 3% is not great. But what you don't want is to have an excessively high leverage ratio because uh, in a sense, I mean, relative to the capital ratio, because the capital ratio, by uh, inducing uh, risk uh, um, linked to risk, uh, the, uh, what you have uh, is uh, a cheaper way of uh, using capital to reduce, uh, to reduce uh, risk. And so you can have very... Simple example showing that. Now, finally, stress tests and so on, indeed useful, but let's face it, politics can play a role. You can see uh, a lot of, uh, a lot of uh, uh, lobbying by, by the banks. Uh, of course, it's also an uh, imperfect instrument. In particular, we typically have static balance sheet assumption. Now, it's not optimal because banks do, do react very quickly to incentives. On the other hand, uh, if you start allowing them to have dynamic balance sheets, they will come with zillions of arguments for why it's not that bad because they will adjust and so on and so forth. So maybe from a political economy perspective, that's the, the best you can do. Um, now, uh, 
Finally, as I said, uh, indeed, you have to, to be careful about these cross-border banks because we are talking uh, of a risk of too big to fail, especially if you do that through takeover battles. Uh, and I can see this could happen. Huh? You know, maybe some will want to buy Commerce Bank and so on. And as we know, it's very well documented in general and beyond banking that uh, around 100% of the efficiency gains of these takeovers are obtained by shareholders of the target. Uh, the winner's curse is not rare. The best, the most famous or infamous example was takeover of ABN AMRO by Royal Bank of Scotland, Santander, and Fortis. Yes, I'm almost done. Uh, but uh, so, so basically, uh, you have to think that on average, uh, when you start uh, running your acquisition, you've already given away 100% of the game. And so, uh, since you know some of these battles can involve, uh, you know, uh, uh, teenagers almost, uh, if people like behave like teenagers who want to win and so on, uh, we have to be careful. Um, so, yeah, that was what I wanted to say. So, I'm not against cross border banking, but done cautiously. Thank you very much, Rebecca. Then... Right. So, hi, thank you all for coming. I do not have any slides. Um, what I do have are some, some points and some starter questions, and then I hope you all will ask some questions as well. Um, I really enjoyed the report, I would like to say. I want to spend some more time with it. I would like to encourage everyone who hasn't had a chance to see the actual report to get one and to flip through it. Even if you don't have time to read it, read it. One of the things I liked about it was a lot of its points were, were easy to digest, and you could read a small section and come away with something that might be useful to you. Maybe not the whole point, but that's a that's a really strong thing in a, in a report like this, to be able to just sort of open it and read a chapter and think, oh yeah, that's interesting, and I will keep that in mind. Uh, that said, one of my favorite parts of the report is literally on the first page, where it says, a major challenge for regulators is to gather the necessary political support to take forward the reforms as needed. There really are two sides of every banking crisis. There's the plumbing side, and there's the political side. And they require very different solutions, which is why we've ended up with a lot of the halfway houses that we're in now. Uh, you cannot focus on only one as much as you might like to in most financial crises. The one exception being the post-September 11th, 2001 financial crisis, where there was no political side. There was just a huge operational side. Um, but most of the time, you don't have a, you know, a meteor falling like that. So. When you look at this, one another thing I liked about this report was it was transatlantic. It looks at the Euro crisis and it looks at the U.S. crisis without some of the, usually people looking at the Euro crisis like to say, well, ours was the second crisis. The U.S. crisis was first and it sort of pushed us over the edge. Well, yes and no. Um, with that in mind, the U.S., the fundamental U.S. approach is don't just stand there, do something. If you have a bunch of Americans in a room, at the end of the night, they will say, you know what, we've got to try something, and if it doesn't work, at least we tried. And you saw that with Bear Stearns, with Lehman, with AIG, with Citi, with troubled problem after troubled problem. The European approach is, don't just do something, stand there. And I went to many Eurogroups and many summits where they would come in at the end of the night, and they would say, um, you know, we have no choices, but thank goodness we didn't do that plan from last time because if we'd done something, it might have failed, and then where would we be? 
And that's a legitimate political choice. You can, you can choose that. It's not, I mean, you can hear from my accent. I'm American. It's very alien to me. But after, what, eight years in Europe, I've, I've come to respect that that is a preference of the people here. So looking at what will work versus what people want, those, those have to interact. The most radical thing in this report is this idea that central bankers and fiscal authorities should cooperate. That's really a sea change. And from a plumbing perspective, it's a great idea. We hear Mario Draghi, he goes out and he says, look, I'll do what I can, but you guys, if you're able to spend, you gotta do it. You can't just be riling up, and this is my own personal metaphor, you can't just be piling up grain surpluses that will spoil because it's better to have a surplus than a deficit. At a certain point, you need to go out there and spend things. But he's a central bank. And is he gonna get the Germans to spend? No. I mean, maybe, but, but probably not. Um, there are so many interesting points that, that are worth thinking about and coming up. The, uh, a thing I'll just throw out, um, because it's a thing I happen to know a lot about, is the direct recapitalization instrument that was developed by the European Stability Mechanism at the height of the Euro crisis between 2012 and 2014. This is a thing that was extremely innovative and radical when it was announced, when it was finally put into implementable form in 2014, it was virtually unrecognizable. And we know now in hindsight that it could not have been used and will not be used. This is where I tell you that I recently wrote um, the ESM's internal history. You can download it for free on their website. It is their book, not mine. Any opinions you might hear from me about it are strictly mine and not theirs. I don't represent them. But it's a good book and there's history in it. In chapter 34, where we talk about the direct recap instrument, you will see that they ran war games. They ran stress tests on the crisis mechanism. And what they found was that this instrument, which you will recall, was created out of thin air as a way to reassure the Spains and the Italys of this world that if their banks fell due to contagion rather than to their own domestic misdeeds, that there might be a way to provide public European level support without cratering the national balance sheet in the process by making a loan to the government. Okay, so this was the original idea. Well then, almost immediately, they started adding all of these things, all this stuff. By the time they ran the war games, they ran two. It became clear that as soon as you go into one bank, all the other banks fall down. At that point, the country falls down. At that point, you have to go in and do a full macroeconomic adjustment program of the type that you were trying to avoid. Um, maybe if you're Spain and you're big, you can hold out and get around this, but Spain, as you know, did indirect bank recapitalization, which is to say the Spanish government took out the loan, the ESM didn't go directly into the banks. I'm going through this very quickly, but it's, it's a real parable for all of these different things that came up in this. Um, and the last point I'd like to make is about communication. To get the political support, you have to convince the public that this is in their interest and that this is in fact stability that will make them richer and not a bailout that will make them poorer. Um, backstop versus, versus bailout. But it, 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 
It's important in communicating this. And even for those of us who follow it, the terms change. Leverage ratio today means exactly the opposite of what leverage ratio meant when I started covering writing about banking. Uh, in the old days, you wanted a lower leverage ratio. You would talk about it in terms of 20 to 1 versus 12 to 1. Now you talk about it in terms of a percentage. The underlying concept is there. Having one is good, but explaining it to someone, how to use it, how to think about it. If you're a deputy finance minister in a country where you haven't been following Basel for a long time, maybe you're not even a Basel committee member, this is hard stuff. And I think reports like this can do a good job in making the concepts accessible and making the whole system, the plumbing part of it, more visible to people. Because it, at the end of the day, it is a plumbing system and you can't just come in and shut the water off here without thinking about where the water explosion is going to be over there. So those are my wrapping up thoughts. Um, thank you very much. Thank you very much, Rebecca. Uh, interesting points. Um, I have a question if no one has one, but we can turn I'm it over sure to the floor. Yeah, 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 yeah. Oh, yes. Why don't we swap? Huh. You want to swap? You have to answer questions. We have getting a change of cast half the way through the show. <laughs> Uh, you need to give your, your uh, mics to the... Uh, to yeah, yeah, All right, well, while they're changing, I want to ask a question because it's one that came up. Um, in the, the, quest, the topic of bridge financing, one of the slides mentioned DIP, which I think is possibly deposit insurance protection. Debtor, it was in, debtor, debtor in principle. Debtor in, possess, okay. debtor in possession. Debtor in possession. Well, I wanted to ask how that would work and how it might work for somebody with deposit insurance or without. Maybe that's something you can talk about. Okay, but let's, uh, there's a lot to a lot here in the report, and a lot came from the comments. So I think we should try mm -hmm. and sort of bundle things up. And I'd like to open yeah. up the floor also for questions. But if I may abuse my, my position for maybe a minute or two, uh, I also like to throw in some ideas. Um, first of all, here, Rebecca, I would also like your views as well. Uh, Matthias said that the bailout and the backstop are really one of the same thing. I would like us to discuss this a little bit. Is it really the same thing? Um, and, and, you know, if it's not, where are the subtle differences? I mean, I understand where Matthias is coming from, but I'd really like us to think about that. Because uh, perhaps that is actually a problem in progress in some of the issues. Perhaps that the two are considered more of the same thing. And, and given the negativity on the bailouts, the negativity on the backstop isn't justified. But perhaps we can, we can throw that in. Um, um, Rebecca, I was fascinated by your calling the uh, idea of a fiscal monetary cooperation coordination radical. Um, I think that was that was actually a very uh, maybe I'm showing my age. I think that monetary cooperation is radical. That the monetary fiscal cooperation is a radical idea. So that that was that was actually uh, interesting that you see that. Um, uh, but I mean, I think the conversation on the central bank independence is a fascinating one. And Stephen, I'm great you're actually part of this discussion now because you could tell us a little bit about uh, what the uh, BIS view was uh, on this idea of monetary policy targeting financial imbalances. Is that is that a good thing? Uh, how would that affect the independence of the central bank? And actually, how would that affect outcomes? Because at the end of the day, outcomes is what we want, and means are, of course, ways of going to outcomes. Uh, but you have been very, um, I don't know if this was deliberate, but you have not committed yourself to where you think this conversation should go. I don't know if it's in the report, but in your presentation, you did not express a view on this. And then finally, I'd like to ask the $1 million question. And, and, and I think, you know, the capital requirements the, and, and what is an 
optimal capital requirement. And in order to be able to answer that question, you need to have an idea of what it is you're preparing for. I mean, you know, the number you mentioned, Patrick, of 30% capitalization, if you also include all the buffers, the TLAC, is actually a very big number, certainly by comparison to history. But is it sufficient? In order to answer that question, you need to have an idea what kind of shock you're catering for. Um, and, and the, you know, so in fact, my question here to, to the authors is, what types of things, in the, sort of in the principal things, do you think we should be thinking about when we require banks to capitalize, in particular since you pointed out in your presentation a very important trade-off here, and that is the more you capitalize, the less you are capable of performing banking services. And in Europe, we don't have anything else. We don't have capital markets, we only have banks. If banks don't finance because banks have to sort of carry capital, Who's going to finance growth? And, and um, I'm simplifying, but I'm, I'm simplifying for effect. Um, I think that these are sort of questions that are, of course, that they're not new. Uh, but I think we would like to have sort of an approach to uh, to where uh, to where uh, where to do that. And then the other thing is that I will take the very last comment. One of the comments that, that Matthias made on this idea of the eurozone. Um, you you did say that we need to take into consideration institutional constraints. But I think in the eurozone we are beyond institutional constraints. We are on governance structures that are very different from many other jurisdictions. You have 19 fiscal policies, one one monetary policy. You're talking about coordination between the two. I mean, what what do you have in mind here? How can we go about uh, uh, achieving the coordination, even if it's radical? <laughs> um, but how do you implement it in the eurozone? I mean, this is the governance issues is perhaps the number one challenge. Uh, uh, for you know the future uh, president of the ECB and indeed for for the future Eurogroup, I'll stay here and uh, I'll I'll give the floor to our new panelists, uh, <laughs> and uh, please discuss whatever you like, and then we will uh, open up for for our public to come to discussion. First, okay, so I'll start. Um, first of all, thanks thanks very much for these terrific comments and questions. Um, and, uh, and I guess my, my, my overall reaction is that I'm very pleased with the reception that we're getting and, uh, and that people are finding this uh, both useful and informative. Um, and, uh, and I guess when you produce something like this, you know, you hope that 10% of it is, is useful <laughs> and informative. Uh, so I think that hopefully we've met that. Um, let me just make, I want to make uh, several general comments and, and then try and answer one specific or two specific questions. First of all, I think it's it's very important in the current environment to keep in mind that left to their own devices, banks will hold too little capital and too little liquidity because they do not internalize the social costs of their activities. What that means is that the business of the regulator is to force them to internalize those social costs, to increase the cost of doing business beyond where they would be. They will complain. If they're not complaining, you haven't done enough. And so don't listen to their complaints. Some of their complaints are okay, but by and large, I would say, I, my rule of thumb was, they better be screaming. And if they're not screaming, I need to do more. Now, this is, um, so then the question is whether we've done enough or too much in certain dimensions, okay? So, um, but that's the, that's, that's the first, that's the first thing. Um, uh, I think the second point, which is really important, in, especially in the context of, uh, of the Euro area, is, um, is as one of my friends said years ago, you cannot deleverage by borrowing. So if you think that the cause of a problem is too much debt, do not run policies that ask your banks to lend. Okay, that's the second point. So the fact that Euro area banks are contracting their lending activity is intentional. 
That is what we are trying to get them to do. The fact that they are shifting, as they are, activity to other non-banks is what we are trying to do. This is, remember, these are intended consequences of the regulatory reforms. They are, it's really simple. The idea is you have too much debt in the banks, the banks are too big, force them to shrink and force them to do it in a way that increases their, increases their capitalization. Um, on the question that you raised, both of you, about bailouts versus backstops, um, I will try and channel uh, Patrick a little bit on this to say that if we have a resolution regime that is actually operating as designed, then the backstop slash bailout problem should go away, okay? Now, whether we have such a regime, I'm not 100% sure. The problem that we were pointing out, especially with the SEB's original 2009 stress test, which didn't, which didn't even stress, by the way, for those of you that, if you go back and look, you'll discover that Greek debt was not stressed. Okay, Greek debt was allowed to be held by the banks in the stress test in the summer of 2009 in the euro area um, at book. Basel rules. So it says so. And, and so, yeah, but the stress tests you should you, you you should be allowed to do this. Anyway, that's a different. So so the um, <clears throat> but if it if it works, that's where um, where where I think you should be. The the question of what I think that one of the biggest embarrassments uh, of the uh, of the finance and banking part of the finance profession is that we cannot answer the question of what the optimal level of capital is mm. in a bank. Okay? I do not think we have a good answer. Um, I think our answer is that it's not zero and it's not 100%. Um, but uh, and there's and, and but it's somewhere in between. Um, but that's not a profound answer. So um, and and then the question is whether or not how we want to deal with the fact that, for instance, uh, total assets to risk weighted assets, as you go even in the major jurisdictions of the world, vary from say I would say about one and a half to about three, and that really makes leverage ratio risk weighted asset requirements sort of have very different effects as I go from one jurisdiction to another because of the differences uh, in the business models. I'll turn to, I'll, I'll let you answer the hard questions. Just a few minutes to, sure. to I mean, on, on one basic issue and without going into the detail, I mean, is, is fiscal monetary coordination a radical idea? And I think what basically we, we come up, and, and one important point in this report is that basically we didn't go into the details of the Eurozone. We didn't go into all too many details that were too American specifics. We could have gone. Uh, we wanted to stay one step back and, and look at the general principle level to see just instead a few ideas that might be useful at all levels, but of course that need to be developed according to a specific, uh, specific uh, institutional setup. Now, I, th I think what, what, one thing that we believe we clearly say the world has changed not only for all of us but also for central bankers since uh, 12 years this has led to de facto a bigger role for central bank but also normatively they should accept a bigger role in particular in the domain of financial stability i mean we have this view that essentially uh, the, the goal of price stability, which is the narrow definition of what central banks try to do, it's, it's really a means to a goal. The goal is macroeconomic stability. And macroeconomic stability without financial stability, you don't have it. So the central bank have to grasp that, that, that concept and, and move 
determinedly forward in this direction. The problem is that there's been a huge aki. Try to say what is the translation of aki earlier today. Missions. What is the what is the aki in the of, of the of the of the end of the, the 21st the 20th century is central bank independence. And how do you reconcile the two? And you have seen, you all of you have seen not only Mr. Trump's tweet, that's not what we are after. It's more deep comment on uh, or questioning about central bank independence, which have to do with the fact that they are much more visible, they are much more active, they are much more into the melee of political discussions. And so, then the question, can we do it? Uh, and, and I relate that to political coordination because of macro coordination. The, the way central bank independence was interpreted was really send a few technocrats with a very defined, defined mandate on top of a hill. They'll work with them. They're not going to mesh with the rest of the us. They, will, they know what they have to do. If they don't do it well, they'll be killed. If they do it well, we won't touch them. This makes it as a very difficult model to engage into a discussion with political authorities. It makes it a, a model that is impossible to practice if you want central banks deeply involved in financial stability, because there they will not be able to do it all on their little hill up, 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 upside. They will need to be meddling with political authorities, with other inst institutions, with financial regulators at some levels. And Basically, what we are saying, okay, we need to take a step back, and, and you mentioned the word communication and explaining, and it's really much in our, in our text. It's how to do it? Not clear. It's possible to do it, but precondition is that they need to be a public discussion. They need to be a debate. Central banks should not hide under the, the, the carpet and say, okay, things are fine. No, we are not. No, we need a public debate on this issue. And we believe, of course, and here we can more from the macroeconomic side, if we believe that we are going to be at the zero-dollar bond for a long time, or that we are going to be repeatedly at the zero-dollar bond in the future, we cannot leave things as they are. We've got to define a setup which has to be yeah. country-specific or continent-specific, uh, to make sure that, that the discussion can start again without endangering central bank independence. We are convinced that it's possible. It's clear that we are fully adhering to the, to the Paul Tucker's book, who has been concept, uh, investing a whole book on that. We think there are very good ideas in there. So it's possible, and we should not refrain from engaging into that discussion in order to reach, to reach that goal. This is true. Macro, fiscal, uh, fiscal and, and, uh, and monetary policy coordination, but it's also true in financial stability, where there you have de facto coordination problem, whether you want to address them or not, if you don't address them, you're going to have a big loss of efficiency and accountability. And we see that we are a bit in the middle of the river at that stage, uh, and uh, this is a risk for the future. Thank you very much, Jean-Pierre. Um, can I then perhaps open up the floor for take some questions? We have a little bit of time, particularly if you're a banker, this is your time to... Uh, uh, there's a gentleman there, uh, a gentleman here. Uh, any other questions from the back, perhaps? Ah, there. Okay. If we take three questions, I come back. So here, there, and in the middle. Uh, hi. Can you please introduce yourselves first? Yes, I'm, I'm Nils Bjorkstedt. I'm uh, from the European Commission. Um, oh, when I, I saw the title of this sound at last, can I, have a word? Um, I, I was wondering how things are actually looking on, on the ground. And you've talked a lot about the primary legislation. You've got the different titles of Dodd-Frank. On the one hand, you've got the corresponding primary legislation in, in, in Europe. On the other, 
Um, but uh, all of these require a whole lot of agency rulemaking, for example, uh, getting information on derivatives and, 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 and so on, getting an overall picture of where risk exposures are. Uh, how is that looking? Is that, are we sound at last on that? Okay. Thank you very much. As Nopros, formerly of the European Commission, I think uh, one or two panelists mentioned the question of political acceptance, whether politics is at the source of the problem. Um, we know quite well that in Europe right now, the politicians and even the average citizens is concerned about the stability of the, let's say, of the banking system, the financial system. But more important for them is they're questioning the, whether the financial sectors in Europe are contributing substantially to the real economy. I came back from a trip to the United States, actually. I have contacted... Can I please ask you to ask the question? Because yeah. we have others who My want to... My question is, yeah. in the United States, right now the feeling is that the financial sector contributes only 30% to the real economy. My question is... Do we have any evidence that in, in Europe there is such a risk, let's say, to go in that direction, or our financial sector makes a much more substantial contribution than to 30%? Okay, that's a very clear. Thank you. And then there was just behind it, there was a gentleman there. Ingus Borisostik from the Permanent Representation of Germany. First of all, thank you very much for your presentation. I can't hear you. We can't hear you. Can you please raise your voice a little bit? The, the mic is on. He says you need okay. to... Yeah. Okay. Um, I've got a question regarding TLEC and uh, the BRRD because you said that um, TLEC is basically better designed than the things in the BRRD, I think MREL especially. And um, the question is, what would you change, um, including the thought of proportionality, which we have in the um, European supervision system? Thank you. And then the gentleman at the front, actually, we should take this first question here. Uh, in Patrick's single point of entry, um, model, assuming Mathias Vatripon uh, gets his uh, European cross-border banks, where's the money for the backstop going to come from? <laughs> <laughs> Thank you very much. Any other questions before we go back to the panelists for last comments? Attempted answers, last comments? Okay, then let's go back. We have 10 minutes. We can, we'll come back and talk to that. Um, <laughs> oh. Well, I'll, I'll just take, I, mean, I, I, I neglected your question about uh, about targeting financial imbalance. Yeah, I thought that was deliberate, actually. <laughs> um, it wasn't entirely deliberate, um, although I can see how you would have interpreted it that way. Um, and just for the record, you Central can go back and jokes. see I never made public statements that <laughs> actually supported that. Um, um, I my, my my view is that. Um, is that you do have to do these things more holistically, yeah. um, but that the first line of defense against financial stability problems is prudential regulation, and that um, and that if you feel that there is insufficient resilience in your in your system, what you need to do is uh, is find a is find a way to get it, not not reduce or raise or whatever interest rates. That's not interest rates are a very poor tool in my view for ensuring that your financial system um, for for your that your financial system is um, is resilient. Uh, the question of how things look on the ground in the U.S. poorly um, is the sh is the short answer to that. Um, 
Um, I think that there's a lot of, uh, as, as everyone in, certainly in, in Brussels and places that do a lot of, uh, that, that write, are involved with rule writing, you know that the de details matter intensely and, uh, and the way in which the rules are being written and enforced in the US right now, in my view, is not great. Um, and uh, and um, on the, the TLAC, I'm not sure I quite understand entirely the question, but I will say one thing about this, and that my, my own view, not speaking for everyone, is that, um, is that overall there may be big enough buffers in the system today. The question is whether or not the balance between capital and other forms of debt are really the right ones. If we shifted towards more uh, towards more capital and away from various kinds of subordinated debt, it could address some of these other problems also, including the ones uh, associated with how it is that cross-border resolution uh, or at least cross-border transfers might end up working. I'll stop there. Thank you, Mr. Jean-Pierre. Okay, maybe on, on the question of political acceptance and, uh, and the role of the financial sector, I, I think there is a question of reality and perception. I mean, if the crisis has shown us something, or if the effort of the ECB today, for the last seven or eight, show, uh, are worth anything, it's that it has all depend a lot on the financial sector. When the financial sector doesn't work well, we, we have a real problem. So it is no uh, distinct, I mean, there is no antagonism between Main Street and, and, and Wall Street. It's just that we've got to explain better and certainly make sure, and that's where maybe the question of remuneration comes back. We have to make sure that a number of things are, are, are in place, stability on the one hand, and indeed uh, when we identify the fact that we are subsidizing banks, we'd like, we'd like them to show a bit of uh, moderation in terms of remuneration. That, but that's more, it's, it's, it's part of communication, and, and certainly we believe that uh, uh, we, we, we need a sound financial sector. We are convinced that significant progress has been made. We are not totally there yet, and there are still a still number of questions. Just on, as an aside, if I take, let me give you the Swiss view on backstop and, 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 and bailout. The Swiss view is that bailout is a no-no, simply because our banks are too big to save. And so we say no, they are, but of course liquidity backstop, and that's a main, one of the main messages in the resolution chapter, is, is, it's, it's, it's a denial to say that we won't need it. It's, it's, uh, and that's, again, that's a lesson of, uh, of, of Diamond Didvik as well, right? I mean, you need, you, need to, you need to be there with the liquidity backstop, but it's very different from, from an outright bailout. Um, on financial imbalances, I wanted to say we, we come up a bit, we come up somewhat I mean, we, towards the view that from a pure efficacy, efficacy viewpoint, uh, it'd be nice to have everything under one roof. Then these questions about financial cycles and macroeconomic cycles, they are totally internalized. And again, so we have a little uh, push in favor of the Bank of England model. Uh, we believe that they, it's, it's a very demanding model, which has led them to take significant step in terms of public explanation and, and transparency, and that's a model to be followed. As we said, I think one of you uh, said, we, we don't think we, uh, we have to take institutions as they are today, and it's, they are not going to be changed. Most of them are in place since a few years only, but we can take that as a model, uh, and uh, indeed this potential distinction between financial cycle and, and uh, macroeconomic cycle, 
uh, lead to point up very directly to this coordination issue that we have mentioned in the financial stability domain, which yeah. which is something that is totally in many places unresolved today. Yeah. Maybe you should have uh, just answer the question of uh, uh, because I'm not able to answer the distinction on the distinction between uh, TLAC and BRRD, yeah. but uh, you would be the right person to do I'm it. I'm sure you would. Uh, we'll okay. come to Matthias actually, but uh, would uh, would uh, Patrick or Xavier would you like to, to make any comments on this? No. Okay, then we we'll come back to. Uh, well, did you want me to answer about about debtor and possession finance? I'll ask you afterwards. I okay. won't bore everyone. All right. You can ask. You can. Um, but it, I am interested. <laughs> okay. <laughs> Just a, yes, I will. I will be brief. The first thing I'll say is that pre Doville, pre this Doville agreement, that euro area sovereign bonds could be written down. The idea that a euro area country could default was unthinkable. And that was certainly the US position. The US went so far as to bail out Mexico so that it would not have a sovereign default on its doorstep. So not stress testing sovereign debt in the context of the time, I think is, it makes a little more Same. sense than it does now that this seismic shift has gone and certainly within the euro area. You can have a default. I mean, that really changes things. And it comes back to, I think, what Matthias was saying about once somebody has a run, everybody else wants to run. Um, on backstops, if you have to ask if your backstop is big enough, it's not. That's how they work. Uh, but about this question about who will pay for it, this is interesting because this is a third point that, that I wanted to make about communication. If you make the right case for it, you say, look, if we do this bailout right, we will make money off it. The money is in the bank stacks where the money is. So it is in our interest to minimize the pain on you and to maximize the profits for us. If we leave it to the private sector to do, they will maximize the pain because they will come in at the lowest possible price. They will maximize their gains, so you will minimize the gains. So you have public losses on both sides. And then my last, and I'm sorry, I didn't mean to be in any way disrespectful, but regarding the difference between a liquidity bailout and a regular bailout, if you do it right, they're all liquidity bailouts. Every single one of the US bailouts, all that money came back in. They made money on all of it. The only part of the US financial rescue that they did not turn a profit on was the 40 billion, which is not that much in the grand scheme of things, the 40 billion American dollars that went to individual homeowners to help with foreclosures. And, oh, and the auto industry, which was a small amount and which was an old fashioned corporate industrial bailout about which. You can say a lot of things, but they're not banks. I think we can all agree there. <laughs> so in terms of where the money comes from, you squeeze the banks afterwards. You you create a framework which says we will give you liquidity. Irish case, maybe. You know, um, this is another great conversation. Uh, the euro area put a lot of pressure on the Irish to guarantee everybody to not allow any private investor. To, to take losses on that. And that's when the Irish inextricably merged the bank and the sovereign finances, which eventually brought them down. That's a complicated conversation. But if you start, as I do, as a good American, with the idea that a country, which was a political sovereign idea, and a company, which is a bunch of people with private money, that they should be treated differently, you maybe get to a different answer there. Thank you, Rebecca. Matthias, final words. Well, on uh, MREL versus TLAC, uh, I think that uh, TLAC was much more prudent. Uh, there was the proportionality aspect, and it's only GSIPs, while here 
it's for uh, every bank, the 8% rule. Uh, and uh, more importantly, the, uh, also the, the sequence was much better in TLAC, while uh, we had the 8% rule immediately for, the, uh, uh, for all the banks without having anything in place. And we are gradually getting there. But uh, now, uh, on proportionality, uh, I do agree that at some level, it is strange, to say the least, a TLAC for GSIPs is, uh, in terms of non-risk weighted, is 6.7%, while here we are 8% for all the banks. Uh, now, there is also the component on capital, the capital ratio, but somehow it looks like Europe is overdoing it. Uh, now, uh, indeed, proportionality would make a lot of sense. You know, Europe is the only place in the world which is Basel III non-compliant. If you knew that, but then the next worst pupil uh, <coughs> uh, in the class is in the US. There is obviously a correlation with size, uh, but uh, they are, I think, broadly consistent, whatever. And then all the rest, they are fine, you know, from Turkey to Russia to China to whatever. They are all fine. Uh, so I do think that it would be much better in the EU to be compliant with Basel III on a uh, restricted sample of banks. I think in the US it's like 19 banks that, are, that have to be Basel III compliant. Here, you know, the ever closer union, blah, 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 uh, all the banks have to do it because, you know, the Europe should, this, should do everything, which I think doing everything badly is not great. I'm not saying, of course, that uh, we are hugely non-compliant, but, you know, and... Uh, European Commission, so they were not happy to, to see that the things went this way. But at some level, it was a bit unfair, this, uh, this mark, but not that unfair. Um, so, so anyway, I, I do think that uh, it would be nice to definitely lower the 8% for the smaller banks. Uh, and for the rest, I do think that indeed, we should think more uh, seriously about this uh, bailout backstop thing. I think liquidity backstop, if I may say so, is a bit of a cheap answer, because the real question is when we will lose money. And at some point, we will. You know, on KBC, there was a bailout, and the Belgian and Flemish taxpayer make a, made a killing on it. On Dexia, no. And it will, it's not, the story is not over yet, but you know, we won't recoup everything. So uh, clearly, at some point, there are really bad banks, and you will need to chip in some money. Now, uh, it's Do never great. The profits on one offset, the losses on the other? Now, right now, and Belgian banks didn't do well in the crisis, but by now, and of course you need to, to look and uh, you have some, uh, some uh, you have to see what is the implicit interest rate and all that, but we are not that far away from break-even at this point. Uh, the so the money made on KVC was roughly the money lost on Dexia, but a lot of it is still guaranteed, so you have to be, be careful. Dexia is still uh, almost 200 billion uh, uh, bank. Or, uh, so, uh, but, uh, but I think, I mean, you also have to factor in the fact that uh, not procrastination is very costly for growth and therefore for taxpayers. And you know, deleveraging is the point, yes, to an extent, but as we know, Deleveraging that uh, that goes on very slowly can be awful. Think Japan. That's what they did, you know, denial, and uh, and that was a disaster for growth. So I think 
the best idea when you have a, a systemic crisis is a big bailout, nationalization, restart the bank, and uh, make it up with growth. You know, that's, uh, that's Sweden. That's the US 2000, uh, 2009. Uh, and then it can pay for itself, even though some... Uh, of course, when banks know they will be bailed out, that's not great. And indeed, at some level, whether it's pre-funded or not, so it goes beyond the taxpayer. It's, uh, it's an incentive problem. But you know, once you get a, cri uh, a kind of a systemic crisis, banks can also be victims of this kind of thing. So I would, there was this, uh, I think, uh, uh, Kashyap, uh, Stein, and Rajan suggested capital insurance so that uh, banks would uh, chip in money. And when there is a big recession, you give them some of the money back, some insurance, not based, of course, on their own performance, but on aggregate performance to avoid moral hazard. That's a pre-funded bailout, not a liquidity one. It's a capital bailout. <laughs> these, these are the, the difficult problems, even though I fully agree that liquidity bailout, again, it's a way to uh, reduce the, the reluctance, and it's a useful way because liquidity is a little costly. But you know, at times, it can be. So pure liquidity is never, uh, is never sure. So. Anyway, that was... Okay, thank you so much, Matthias. I'm afraid that's, that's all we have time for today. Let me first thank uh, all the authors of the report for coming here. This is a very interesting discussion, and we'll come back to that. And, of course, our discussion. Thank you for coming, Matthias, again. And, of course, Rebecca, you're in-house. Uh, please join me in thanking the authors and the presenters for this wonderful...